Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Kirsten Ellsworth. Welcome to the New Books in Art channel. Today I'm speaking with Jillian MacGyver, author of Art History for Filmmakers, The Art of Visual Storytelling. The book is published by Bloomsbury and is a brand new title. Hi, this is Kirsten Ellsworth. Welcome to the New Books in Art channel. Today I'm speaking with Jillian MacGyver, author of Art History for Filmmakers, The Art of Visual Storytelling. The book is published by Bloomsbury and is a brand new title published in 2016. Jillian, welcome to our podcast. And I would like to start out by asking you to tell all of us a little bit about how you got interested in this project. Well, it's, uh, I've always been interested in art and cinema. When I did my first degree, which was, uh, I majored in history, but I also took art history, and I was uh, a member of the cinema club at the University of British Columbia, so I would go to movies, and I used to haunt the movie theaters around the university. I, I watched a lot of movies, and so from a really, really early on, I was interested in, in cinema and art um, as just something that brought joy to my life. Later on, I went to film school, and I, I learned filmmaking, and I, I've worked making all kinds of films. But I always retained that interest in art, and I got involved in doing a lot of art projects, curating, uh, making artworks. So it's always been with me. I, then I found myself teaching in a film school, and I was trying to explain visual storytelling uh, to my students, and I couldn't find a go-to book for them. I just I kept having to try to explain everything from scratch, and not having something I could refer them to. So I just I did a, a peer review for Boomsbury uh, for one of their film texts, and uh, when I was you know communicating with the editor, I just took the bull by the horns and I pitched the book to them, and they were like, oh yes. We don't have anything like that. Nobody does. We want to be the first, hence the book. And it really is the first 
yeah, it's the first. There isn't actually another book on specifically on visual storytelling, specifically on how paintings intersect with film, and specifically because there's exercises in how to understand by doing practical stuff. There's not no other book that has that. So it's kind of bringing a kind of art historical perspective, a film perspective, and a practical you can you know, test this stuff for yourself uh, approach. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty unique, actually. It is a unique book, and I was, one of my questions for you was, how do you envision readers using the book? I think you've already touched on it. Do you see the book as um, a textbook, in a way? The thing is, the book, actually, and I wrote it quite specifically in this way, it is meant to be used. So it's not an academic book in the sort of sense of, say, an academic monograph. It's meant to be used by people. And I think that there's several categories of people who I was deliberately aiming for. People who would like to work in film and they need to know, you know, about how film is a visual medium. And so, say, film students... But not everybody who wants to work in film is a student. I mean, it could be somebody who's just moving from one aspect of media production into filmmaking. Uh, also, people want to work in art di directing and production design. Um, but I think it also is a book that could be useful for art history students who, in a way, it gives a sense of how art lives on into the 21st century, how those 18th century paintings are still very much alive in our culture. So it's useful for art historians. And I think finally, just based on the evidence of people that I know, it's, it is written for some for people who are just interested and um, uh, not necessarily going to have a career in film, but they are actually interested in the subject. So I aimed it, the way I wrote it was um, as communicative as possible. I tried as much as possible to avoid using either film or art history jargon. There's a glossary, right? So, you know, I have to use certain words like chiaroscuro, but I explain what they mean. So it's, 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 it could be a textbook. I mean, it is being used in universities. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's very ideal for that, but you can actually just pick it up and use it on your own uh, if that's what you wanted to do. And that's, this is one of the most fascinating, uh, the most important qualities of the book, in my opinion. Since I'm an art historian, I probably read it one way, but I end up ended up learning so much about the relationship of very famous paintings to very famous films. Mm. And I really liked that part of the book. And I wanted to ask you as well, maybe this is more of the academic question, but if you could briefly tell us a little bit, you discuss how art history relates to cinema history. And, um, the, you know, one of art history is so old, or the history of visual culture. And then you have this interesting comment in the book, really, the history of cinema is about 150 years old. So could you talk to us a little bit about those two histories? Yeah. Now, I'm not going to lie. I It's this, this the inspiration for this, this, uh, this part of the book is not something I originated. This comes from um, the writings and talks that I've been to of one of my most influential filmmakers, who's not just a filmmaker, he's also a thinker. And this is Peter Greenaway, who's one of the, the filmmakers who's, I think, I'd have to call him a film philosopher in a sense. 
And he has made the point that cinema, so much of cinema is simply a, an illustrated adaptation of existing novels, whereas actually cinema in its essence is really a, a, an audiovisual medium and it can do so much more. And he pointed out that we have 150 years of cinema history. You know, the, really the first viable film screening was in 1895 by the Lumiere brothers. That was the first sort of cinema as we know it screening. But of course, visual art goes back. I mean, I just recently attended a series of lectures at the Warburg Institute here in London on early art. Um, it's called The Origins of Art. And it was going back to, uh, wow, you know, Paleolithic. Uh, art, cave paintings, jewelry making, and things like that, you know, 30, 40, 50, even thousand years ago, maybe even earlier. And it's very clear that the thing that makes human beings totally different to other species is our, almost you could say, compulsion to make art. We're the only ones that do. I mean, primates, if you give them paint and that, they will make art, but they don't make paint themselves. They don't, uh, they don't carve um, you know, sculptures and that themselves. Uh, yet we, we did do that. So it's a really ancient human impulse. And so we can't really say that, that film doesn't come out of that. Of course it has to come out of that. And then there's the storytelling element, which is also very ancient. So linking film to that very deeply human tradition of making visual culture and and linking that to storytelling to me it's really important yet somehow film history has never really purely engaged with that and there are reasons for that and i think that we have to remember that when film came out in the late 19th early 20th century it was such a new technology that um the, you know the critics the art historians and that they were they didn't know how to deal with film, so they were struggling. Is it an art form? Is it not an art form? Is it just some kind of, there's a snobby attitude. It's just some kind of populist mass culture garbage. You know, there's all of that going on. And somehow that, that real connection of film to the history of art slid away in film studies. And, of course, there have been some good books written over the years that have kind of brought it back. But mine was, in a sense, borrowing from all of those to create something that's much more of a comprehensive questioning and look at the subject. Well, and in your approach, which is comprehensive and yet I would say accessible, I think you really get into those arguments without being forced to take sides or get into, as you said, an academic elaboration of them. And right there in your first chapter your uh, topic of visual culture and storytelling, you just mentioned storytelling. I was really curious about um, how you came, what interested you, you the most in terms of the types of stories or what interests you the most in terms of the types of stories told in film that do have this art uh, relationships to the history of art. Well, I think that if you looked at, the history of painting, there's so much storytelling going on. 
And um, of course, a lot of paintings from early, you know, since earliest times, illustrated known stories. But of course, they took it further than an illustration by embedding enormous amounts of visual communication that created a multi-layered sort of experience. And and they, they you know, they they told biblical stories and they told also mythological stories. So I remember one of my, my most uh, fascinating experiences was when I went to Pompeii some years ago and I found myself in front of this, you know, ancient Roman wall painting and it was the Aeneid. And I know the story of the Aeneid and I was able to follow the story by looking at this painting, which was, you know, in somebody's house, some ancient Roman person's house and and essentially reading the Aeneid from a visual point of view because I understood what the things in the picture were. And I thought, well, you know, this is something that we we can we we can communicate so well through visual images. It's not that it's not instead of words, but it's something. It's another way of storytelling. So I think that uh, film film good films especially really understand that. I mean, there are films which are overly talky and you know they rely on excessive voiceover and things like that. But I, I think they're often not that successful. Uh, neither critically and in many cases as, as uh, you know, as product either. So I think that films that really understand the power of the, the communicative power of the visual medium, they're actually plugging into what painters have known since ancient times. As the art historian in this conversation, I'm just agreeing 100% and hoping that uh, I already see the potential for new students in either, you know, film or history, to get intrigued by what you just said. Um, and in the book, I think readers will enjoy, readers who might have the art historical background, the way that you bring in ancient examples and you bring it all the way up to favorite movements, such as the role of surrealism in cinema, uh, the Bauhaus artists like Van Gogh, and... Um, in terms of the arrangement of your book, you have a section on realism and then a section on fantasy and myth and proceed to look at different themes. I, there are so many wonderful examples in the book. I wondered if just to give us a, give uh, listeners a taste of your approach, you might talk about one of the case studies in particular, which was um, Martin Scorsese and the relationship with Caravaggio. Yes. Now that's a very interesting one. I will. Uh, I'll go. I've got the book in front of me here, so I'll have a. I'll have a quick look. Well, I mean, first of all, Scorsese is a fascinating, fascinating filmmaker. Um, his films are. They on the surface they seem like one thing, and then you know, the, you know as you watch, and in fact, they of course bear repeated watchings. You see the multi layers. Um, one thing that Scorsese is, I love about him is he's very open. He likes to talk about cinema. He's not sort of shy to talk about what he thinks. And he also talks about his own films. And he, 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 and it's wonderful when you're a researcher and you have filmmakers who are really articulate and they will talk about their work and they will talk about their wider influences. So, um, one of the things he has talked about is how he's been um, influenced by and very deeply loves the the uh, painter Caravaggio, and so that of course, you know, his evidence is very helpful. But 
if you look at Scorsese's films, you can actually, and, and you, from an art history point of view, if you're already familiar with Caravaggio, you'll pick that out anyway. So on the one hand, you've got um, the director giving us the evidence, but then the, you know, the, the art history knowledge tells you already that it's there. But if you're a filmmaker and you don't know um, about Caravaggio, Scorsese tells you that he already, uh, so you can then go and look up Caravaggio. Having said that, when I've taken students to the National Gallery where there's a couple of very fine Caravaggio paintings, um, they pick, they often pick them out and when asked about what, what, what does that painting say to you, um, somehow Scorsese's name quite often pops up from the students actually. So what I've said in here is that, um, Caravaggio is one of the greatest painters of what I call the cinematic moment, the um, the moment of you know the decisive what, what Cartier-Bresson calls the decisive moment, that moment in the middle of an action, and Caravaggio's ability to capture that and infuse it with drama. So it's not just a sort of snapshot of life; it's about a moment in a dramatic. Uh, story and he the way he paints it with his contrast of light and shade it pops out at you and of course the arrangement of lighting in the Caravaggio paintings is very much the way that many filmmakers would like to arrange the light in order to create drama within the uh, in, within the film shot so there's that lighting relationship the other thing Scorsese um, I think borrows intensively from Caravaggio is arrangement of forms within the frame, um, the arrangement of people, because both Caravaggio's paintings are about people. He's not a landscape painter. He, he paints people doing things. And so, do, and Scorsese's films are about people doing things. Um, they're not really, I wouldn't say they're not about plot. They are about plot, but they're actually about humans doing things and making decisions which drive the plot. So it's always about these moral decisions um, that yeah, Scorsese's characters face. And so there's a lot of links between Caravaggio and Scorsese. I mean, not to get into it, but there's also an intensively religious connection because uh, all of Scorsese's films, well, I won't say all of them, one or two of them, maybe not, um, but they do a large extent explore kind of theological questions or let's say moral questions and Scorsese himself has been honest about being always deeply influenced by uh, the Catholicism of his childhood and Caravaggio is the great tormented religious painter as well so who explores things like you know sin and, and things like that so I think the arrangement of characters in the frame in Scorsese's films is very much along with the lighting is very much um, uh, influenced by Caravaggio. But I want to say something else, though, which I think is interesting, uh, which I talk about later on in the book when I'm talking about modern art, is that the film Taxi Driver, which very much fits in with that Caravaggio-esque uh, sensibility of Scorsese, which Scorsese very much insisted on, was also really, in, in terms of its visuality, very influenced by the painter Robert Rauschenberg. But this influence didn't come into the film from Scorsese. It came into the film from the cinematographer Michael Chapman, who when they're, sitting at, they're setting up the final, uh, not, it's the penultimate scene um, in Taxi Driver when the, um, 
the, the, the killing has all happened and Travis Bickle is sitting in the room um, and the police are coming in. That scene, which is seen from above, Chapman is on record as saying, I wanted it to look like a Rauschenberg. I wanted the arrangement of the forms and the color, etc., to, you know, Robert Rauschenberg's red paintings. So I think for me what's really interesting is in one film you get two sort of gargantuan artistic influences and how beautifully they mesh together. So it's not just, oh, a director is influenced by a painter and then just replicates it in the film. It's much subtle, more subtle than that. And we can't forget the influence of the production designers and the cinematographers as well. And you really described so well these relationships and the cinematographer working with the director. And it made me return to this quote that you have in the book um, from Edward Hopper, where he says, when I don't feel in the mood for painting, I go to the movies for a week or more. I go on a regular basis um, on a regular movie binge. And I thought, my goodness, I, I can't even imagine Edward Hopper going to the movies. Now I can since I've read your book. And I wonder if you could speak to how you feel production people as well as directors um, acquire these understandings of the history of art or history of painting? Well, you know, it's, it's a bit problematic um, because people, okay, people coming into production design, costume design, and things like that quite often have been to art school and often are, um, or at least start out as practicing artists. A lot of a lot of cinematographers paint. One of the problems that we have from a research point of view is that there are this is so shocking and sad, but there are actually very few studies of cinematography and cinematographers, and very and even fewer studies of production design and production designers. This is a, a shocking, um, I think, indictment of film studies as a discipline in that there's all kinds of research on directors, obviously, and on audience studies, and, of course, there's a huge pile of things on, say, psychoanalysis, semiotics, and all of that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but the fact is that the the nitty-gritty of what goes into the filmic image is just, there's a sort of gap, there's a hole in a way. So I very often turning to anecdotal evidence when I look at look for interviews with designers and cinematographers. And there are luckily some out there, some good documentaries, some um, interviews online and, and uh, in magazines and books. So there is an American cinematographer uh, magazines and things like that. But it's a, it's a dearth. So um, in a way, I'm, I'm trying to put it together uh, put together, and what I have found is that, yeah, quite a lot of cinematographers paint. Cinematographers very often uh, use the analogy of painting when they're talking about their work, which leads me to think that they have quite, quite a decent art historical knowledge, maybe not what we might call in an academic sense, but they look at painting with a very um, keen and critical eye. Um, and as I said, fair few of production designers and uh, cinematographers, they do the art school training rather than the film school training or alongside. But, but film school itself isn't necessarily going to give you art historical training. I mean, I was quite lucky at University of Westminster because um, 
the uh, the head tutor of film, uh, Joram Tenbrink, did actually bring us into uh, the room and show us slides particularly of Rembrandt, Caravaggio, etc., and say, now, really want you to look at these pictures, and this is slides, back 35 millimeter slides, right? Um, want you to look at these and really understand how these images uh, operate and how the lighting, and that really made a strong impression on me because I was already interested in painting. But that was just our good fortune because our teacher thought that way, but other courses aren't like that. So... In a way, I'm hoping that the book can at least bridge a gap until the miraculous day when there's a sort of a full understanding of the uh, uh, the need to teach art in some sense or another within film education. Well, your book, I can see a student who has an experience or a filmmaker, doesn't have to be a student, as, you know, just a, a sample conversation or now, I guess, PowerPoint show or something with images could pick up this book and the book for those who are listening is arranged so effectively in terms of sending you provide links to related films um you really the book can open up another world can open up using the internet in conjunction with the book to actually see what you're talking about closer uh reproductions and then to get more into the literature um, which I, I think is makes the book a really, it's much more than just the pages in the volume, right? There's just a larger world that you reference. And I'm wondering, um, as another kind of question, if you feel that um, contemporary film, um, what do you see, do you see the most current filmmakers also interested in the, I'm trying to find the right word, that looking at the history of film themselves and then parsing it down to the art historical references, do you think this trajectory continues? Interestingly, yes. And what and I'll tell you why, because um, I had the privilege at uh, a few weeks ago um, at uh, Central St. Martin's, which is an art school here in London, I was asked to uh, run a master class. Uh, they have a series of sort of enrichment talks and things like that um, to interview a young, up-and-coming young uh, U.S. filmmaker, a guy called Justin Tipping. He's just done his debut feature film, a film called Kicks, which is about sort of... Um, youth culture in the Bay Area about, um, you know, sort of young men coming of age story. And I watched the film, and it's, it's a very good film. I recommend it. And then it, um, uh, so then he was touring the film around and giving talks. So he, he did the interview. And in the interview, I was asking about the cinematography of the film. And he said, and this is what I mean by anecdotal evidence, about how he sat down with the cinematographer and they were working out the shots and he said everything was worked out. And he said, you know, we, we got we gathered together all these images. He said we were we were looking at a lot of Baroque paintings. And I thought to myself, there you go, that the preparatory stage of a uh, a film shoot very often does involve that of let's look at existing images from art to work out how we're going to light and color and frame this film about, you know, 21st century Bay Area 
15-year-olds. So you don't think that there would be a connection, yet in the actual physical making of the film, there's this connection. And so, you know, Tipping and I had not had any, we didn't have any conversation about art per se, yet he dropped that into the conversation. And I thought, well, that, I think, you know, I can extrapolate from that, that that's, it's still happening, that it's not something that we're losing. It's something that we're, we're you know, perpetuating this this anecdotal understanding of the relationship between art and cinema, even if it's not um, articulated that well within existing film studies. That's really encouraging, that story. And I can see the relationship of the Baroque and the lighting, you know, to so many stories that could be told. And you make this point that there are just so, so many stories that need to be told in the book and it's just fascinating that someone in 2017 would choose the Baroque, you know, or it would be influenced by the Baroque in some way. Um, I know that a lot of people who might be listening to this are interested in the fantasy films. And for me, uh, when Pam's Labyrinth came out and, you know, there was this imaginative world that was really an interesting moment in the history of cinema. And I wonder, this is going back, you know, it's not a film that came out this year, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Pan's Labyrinth and the history of art that you extrapolate from that film or the, you know, the paintings and things that influence. Well, I think Pan's Labyrinth, yeah, it's not a new film, but it's, it's, it is genuinely a classic actually it's one of the great classics of world cinema and it's going to be with us as an exemplar of cinema for a very long time i mean i'm a real fan of guillermo del toro as a filmmaker but also as a as a, as a creative artist as a sort of it's called a visual thinker and i was really privileged last year to go to the uh, exhibition at los angeles county museum of art um, which was all about Del Toro and why, why it was so wonderful is his notebooks were there, his sketchbooks, and you could look at them and how, you know, how he connects the visual to the storytelling and how he brings in all these influences. And he's so deeply influenced and, and interested in art. And, but you see it in all of his paintings, in all of his films, sorry, not just Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth is a really important film um, because it brings together you know, I'd say harsh political realism and uh, a very uncompromising, you know, the, the, this is a film set in the Spanish Civil War, aftermath of the Spanish Civil War, with this sort of, you get this sort of triumphant hubris of the, uh, of the Captain Vidal, um, who represents all of the awful things um, in our society. And then you get the magical world, and then you get the in-between, which is represented uh, by the young girl, who um, is sort of literally caught between the um, the horror of reality and the world of, of uh, fantasy. And um, now, from a visual point of view, Del Toro brings in a number of different influences. So he's talked already himself about his love of the paintings of Francisco Goya, and you do definitely see the Goya influence in the film. I mean, most people have pointed out the uh, the, the most horrific uh, uh, character, the pale man, who uh, is very influenced by, um, clearly influenced by the uh, Saturn devouring his children by, by Goya. 
And that's a very interesting painting because it's about a monster eating his own child. And there have been a lot of different versions of uh, Saturn devouring his children. But what's interesting in the um, Goya painting is that you get a sense, it's not just a monster doing it, but it, the monster is doing something out of his his innate being as a monster. It's, the monster isn't evil. The monster is just being a monster. And, of course, that's important in the film because... The monster, the pale man, isn't evil. The pale man is following his nature as the monster. Who's actually evil is Captain Vidal, who's human and who can, who could make moral choices but doesn't. You see, so the monster in in um, in Pan's Labyrinth is as horrible and as dangerous as the monster is, is not actually the source of evil. It's actually the human being who has the capacity to make the moral choice. Monsters don't have that capacity. So by borrowing this particular image from Goya, he's plugging into not only you know the ability to make a scary monster, but also to um, uh, use Goya's own sense of the, of, uh, I suppose, the moral moral universe of the monster. Um, you know the, the, the Saturn or the Titan, which is a, sort of a, a sort of a pre uh, pre prehistoric being who just doesn't live by the human morality that that we live by. So he he uses this painting not just in terms of the uh, you know the 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 look of the character. The pale man is, is the pale man doesn't look like the Titan in the, in the painting, but it's, the coloring is the same. And the, uh, the the way in which the, the the hands hold onto the victim is the same. Um, and now the interesting thing is the eyes are very important. But what he's done is instead of copying the Goya and sticking the eyes on the head of the monster, he puts the eyes on the hands. But they're the same staring, frightening eyes. You see. But the eyes are also not evil. They are searching. They're trying. The eyes are trying to um, trying to find and trying to understand and trying to search you see what i mean so and you see that in the painting the painting i've seen it the painting it's a very powerful painting and he's managed to infuse all of that into the uh, into the character and into the shots the other thing is that um uh as as, as well as goya um because uh because del toro was uh, he's from guadalajara He's not, uh, he, you know, he, that's where he grew up. Um, he must have been, I believe, influenced by the uh, uh, famous Mexican muralist Jose Clemente Orozco, whose work is all over the main major buildings in Guadalajara. And these are really interesting, dramatic murals um, of the history of Mexico, and they 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 show a violence and a sort of, you know, tumult and they're very, very highly dramatic. And I could just imagine that as a child, I'm sure he must have been taken to see these or have seen these and they must have made a really strong impression because when you look at these murals, you're you're in the building and you're surrounded by them and they're really dramatic and they're beautiful and they're really exciting. And so when you look at the, the works that Del Toro makes, this kind of immersive thing, I think he must be also influenced by Orozco. I can't see that that wouldn't have been formative. You know, I'm, as you're speaking, I'm thinking there is a, a 
very precise reason why your book is titled Art History for Filmmakers, The Art of Visual Storytelling. Because as you're describing here, yes, we could look at the painting or we might look at the murals and there are appearances that are shared in the film, but it's much more than that. There's a drive to convey the story yes. through use of the art. I think this is one of the, the key takeaways from your book. It's much more than it looks, the work, the film looks like the painting. It's got to be deep. It has to go deeper. And I noticed in the book you had introduced Jung and the idea of the archetypes. Do you want to say anything about um, the role of archetypes in some of the uh, case studies that you look at? Well, I don't want. I'm not a Jung scholar, but uh, so I'm not that. Not, I'm not, certainly not understand Jung from a psychologist's point of view. But Jung's writing is about art, um, and he, of course, also practiced art. Uh, are very interesting, and I think they're useful to us. And I think the idea that um, uh, paintings very often uh, create images which they they seem to they feel archetypal to us. Uh, so let's just take the idea of the hero. Um, the hero is an archetype, um, which which uh, Jung has identified already, and which has also been identified within um, certain aspects of film theory, the sort of the hero's journey and things like that. But what's not really often discussed is the visual manifestation of, of heroism. Um, but we, but then when we turn around, we can see that we can trace the image of the hero from very early on in uh, European painting. I'm, I'm just talking about European painting here, but of course it exists in other types of painting as well. Um, and so we become able to recognize the visual image of the hero in the traditional sort of heroic archetypal sense. Um, because it's uh, we understand the concept of the hero from a let's call it a psychological point of view, but also um, the, the visual iterations of the hero have they we we can actually recognize it. So what does a hero look like? How does a hero stand? Uh, what kind of facial expressions does a hero have? We get a lot of that from painting. Now, it doesn't mean that the filmmaker can't subvert that, because subverting understood archetypes and understood icons is one of the tools in the filmmaker's palette, absolutely. But um, the fact is there's what operates is a visual recognition of, say, the hero or the uh, heroine or the femme fatale or any of these kinds of things. It's not simply from the, the let's see, the herd or the red story. It's a visual recognition um, of, this, of these archetypes. And that comes out of, um, uh, I suppose, long exposure to the image. Because even modern advertising images very often are plugging into uh, visual archetypes which themselves emerge out of painting. I mean, I think in so, at some point in the book there's a chapter, there's a chapter on uh, sex and violence um, yeah. from painting into cinema um, and there's a p picture uh, when I'm talking about sex uh, which mainly means representation of, uh, of, of, of uh, 
uh, characters who are infused with some kind of sexuality. There's a paint, there's a reproduction of uh, the painting of Venus from 1532 by Lucas Cranach the Elder, and um, it's a very seductive picture of this naked woman with this very uh, uh, transparent um, scarf which she's holding over her private parts, which is completely transparent. Now the painting itself is a very First of all, it's it's of a you know Venus, but I mean you don't have to even know the title to know that it is a seductress, femme fatale kind of image. We see it in her facial expression, we see it in her stance, in her sort of the way she deploys this transparent scarf to to pretend to be hiding something. Um, this image is. We recognize this image right away, but then we also recognize all the derivatives of this image right up to the present in, in a movie. So we recognize this, this uh, seductress character. Now, the painting itself was uh, very popular. He made loads of copies of it because lots of guys, I guess, wanted to buy it. Um, but you see what I mean? There's this idea that um, the archetype exists comes out of mythology, out of wherever, but we, we, we can recognize it visually, and then we perpetuate it, and then, of course, we have the opportunity to subvert it as well. But it all, subversion only works if you already know what the thing itself is. It is fascinating how we tend to already know what that thing is, and um, your point about visual recognition it makes me want to ask you, is there a particular film that kind of, that you can recall that sort of got the ball rolling here on how you liked and how you um, see the relationships of history of art in history of cinema? Was there one film or one experience that sort of initiated the rest of the story? I think I've, always responded very strongly to highly visual films. Um, I think that the film, maybe the film that struck, I mean, I've watched so many films. As a child, I used to watch films on television, and um, it's back before they had all that reality TV crap on. So, um, <laughs> so um, but I think the film that maybe struck me as being you know, shockingly visually striking and intriguing, enough to the point that I saw it many times, was uh, P a Peter Greenaway film, the first one I ever saw by him, which was The Draftsman's Contract, which very much, um, you know, invoked 18th century painting. And I, at that stage in my life, I didn't know much about 18th century painting. I was very young, and um, but it made me go and find out more about it. So I think that film was the one that made me intrigued. And then I uh, became interested in Greenaway's work, obviously. But I started to seek out films which were quite visually striking. Well, of course, that led me to things like all kinds of plots, you know. It led me to things like Gone with the Wind and Black Narcissus and all kinds of amazing films. I suppose, though, it was the probably the draftsman's contract because, you know, of course I'd been to Star Wars and I'd been to uh, all of those kinds of things, and they're visually striking, but they didn't strike me as powerfully as um, uh, the draftsman's contract did. And there is, for those who are listening, uh, there is a really nice section in Jillian's book about, um, I keep saying case study, that might not be the proper term, um, 
the filmmaker that you just mentioned and some of the, it reiterates some of the ideas and some of the things you just said. I wonder, as we're coming to the close of the interview, if you have a future project uh, brewing right now or do you plan another book? Um, well, what, I've, what I'm doing right now is I'm working on um, a study of the representation of history in cinema and painting. Because I've always been, I'm, as I mentioned, my, early, my first degree was in history. I'm trained as a historian, although I've never, you know, been one. I've never sort of written a history book or anything. But because probably what happened is I started to get really interested in the way film portrays history. And um, so I, you know, this many years later, after you know, working in film and writing art history for filmmakers, I'm interested in how cinema and art history portray historical events so i'm working on that the idea is to uh, the idea is to work towards another book so i'm actually at the research stage now and uh, you know writing some uh, papers and conference presentations and things like that although in the long run i would like the book to be again an accessible i mean i'd like to get another accessible uh book out of it which should be ideally you know useful for again film students and filmmakers and film designers um so that's what i'm working on now so there should be some more you know stuff from me coming out but i mean i do also have um i have an ongoing interest in filmmaking so i think that you know somewhere down the line there'll be some film work that i'll be involved in as well this is going to keep you very busy oh, yeah. and I, I hope you, you do have time for this second book because it would be an excellent companion you know like a, uh, for this first book and I when you mentioned history I'm thinking I suppose one of one of the burdens of that project might be the veracity you know sometimes when people uh, a film presents history they're oh that's not accurate or you know well, that's, yeah, you see, that's the interesting thing, because most studies of film, history films are many, well, not all of them, but many of them do actually hinge on the idea of accuracy. Well, I'm actually stepping back from that, and I'm saying, well, if we look at the representation of history and painting, uh, accuracy has always been played with and manipulated. What I'm interested in is how do the visual images convey a sense of history? So it's not really about the. I'm not really interested in whether or not this history is true, um, although at some point I do question that. But you know, how do we get a sense of the past from the visual images? Because the interesting thing about history film is there's no mystery about what happens. We know what happens, unlike any other film where you sit and you you're watching it and you're thinking, I wonder what's going to happen next. We actually know what's going to happen next. We know that Napoleon is going to be defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. Yet we still want to watch the film Waterloo. We want to relive it. But what we're reliving is the visual experience. So how does the film convey a sense of the past? And if you look at history films, you know, they've done over, over time, they've done, that, done it quite differently. And, um, and the relationship between history film and history painting uh, or history represented in painting is very interesting. And how the history film almost always invokes painting as a, as a way of you know, using paintings to, to get period detail, but also as a kind of um, 
you know, imprimatur of quality as well, of seriousness. So I think there's a lot in there that maybe hasn't been a, hasn't been quite looked at in, in discussion of the history film. So I think my approach might be kind of interesting. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's radical. And I, I like the way that we're right back to where you started us with, we always make art and we always want to tell stories. And that is also how we construct our history. It's a really terrific point. And Jillian, I want to thank you for taking time to speak with us today. Um, I hope everyone goes out and uh, gets Art History for Filmmakers, The Art of Visual Storytelling. It is a powerful book, and now you've had the chance to hear something from the author about how it came together. And I hope that I'm interviewing you not too far off about your second book. Well, hopefully. Yep. I'm working on it. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.